church. So good to be here with you all. Thank you all for tuning in. Let's stand to our feet and let's worship our God.
Good morning. Good morning, church family. Welcome. We're glad you're here. Families, kids, we are glad you are here. This is little Quinn. He is our new guy. So welcome, welcome, welcome. Quick announcement. This Wednesday is our Thanksgiving Eve service. And so that will be streamed online. It will be happening here, 5.30 and 7 p.m. Capacity is limited. You can register online at the front of the website. And uh, it will be a time to give thanks and all things to reflect on our year. It is always a very sweet family time for people here at GBC. And so whether you've been here a while or you're new, you are welcome uh, to, uh, to uh, go ahead and sign up and to meet us there for that sweet, sweet time together. And as a family, we are going to continue worshiping now.
this with me. I won't.
Father, your word tells us that you delight in us, that you rejoice over us with singing, that you actually, that you actually sing over us, that your love for us is so great that you'd send your own son to die a death that we deserve. Father, we lift your name high this morning. We praise you and we worship you for all that you do and all that you are. Would you help us turn our hearts to you today? to turn our attention to you and what you have for us this morning. Father, let all that we are, let all that we are be totally and completely consumed by who you are. May your name be lifted high and, and would it be magnified here in this place and in our lives. It's in Jesus' name, Lord, all these things that everyone said together. Yeah. Amen, praise God, you guys can have a seat. Good morning. My name is Tim Coulterman. I'm one of the elders here at Groton Bible Chapel. Today, the elders and I are pleased to announce the creation of a new ministry here. And as many of you know, Groton Bible Chapel has been the, uh, you know, has been the uh, place where a lot of ministries have begun, like Camperia, His Mansions Ministries, um, CareNet, um, just to name a few. And so we are just so thankful that we have uh, people in um, our congregation who are willing to follow God's lead and to uh, step out in faith and start a new ministry. So with that being said, I want to introduce today um, Jane Levis and Dorothy Schreg, and they're going to tell you a little bit more about the ministry that they have started. Well, thank you. Thank you, Tim. And good morning, everyone. Dorothy and I are very excited to tell you about a new ministry, uh, Legacy. It's a residential recovery program that helps women find restoration and healing. And the most exciting thing about Legacy is that it's completely God's idea. From the seeds that he planted to the vision that he's given and the framework that he's provided, it truly is his loving and powerful response to a great need in our area. Uh, the sad reality is that there is a growing number of women who suffer with debilitating life cycles of addiction, abuse, recidivism, and other personal challenges. And in light of the pandemic, this great need is really becoming desperate. Um, the sad thing also is that there are very limited long-term Christian recovery options available. And we know as the body of Christ that it's only in Jesus that lives are truly transformed and that he changes our stories forever. And that's the vision that he's given legacy. 
It's women finding hope and strength to change their story. Legacies offering long-term, Christ-centered, sorry, long-term, Christ-centered, supportive environments that'll be biblically based. They'll take godly steps through recovery. Women will find all that they need in Jesus to change their stories, gain freedom to grow in Christ. So yes, the amazing revealed plans for legacy from the Lord are truly timely. And we are excited to move forward with the body of Christ and take next steps in this ministry. Right? Absolutely. <laughs> Thank you, Jane. Amen. Thank you, sister. Um, another reality is that legacy cannot open without the partnership of God's people. And among the great needs, the most vital is prayer. So we would ask you to commit to pray for legacy because there's still so much work to be done. But since the beginning, God has opened doors and he has shown legacy favor. One item you can pray for, and we would appreciate it very much, is the reality of growing the financial support to open legacy, particularly during this season of social distancing. Some may think, wow, that's really going to be difficult, and perhaps so. But God has called us to this timing, and his timing is always perfect. Mm -hmm. Amen. Always perfect. Thank, mm -hmm. you. Thank you. If you would like to um, learn more about Legacy, if, you have, um, if you'd like to receive updates, if you have questions about what you've heard today, there will be an email address on the screen, and you can email us, and we would be happy to meet with you in a way that's comfortable with you, virtually, however it works. And we'll answer your questions. Um, we'd love you to join our friends list. So um, please give us an email. Remember, there is a growing number of women who struggle with addiction and more. And they can only benefit from the power, the restorative work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Legacy will be a place where God, where God will transform lives one woman at a time. Thank you for listening. Thank you, uh, Jane and Dorothy. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for the obedience that Jane and Dorothy have stepped out in faith with Legacy House. Lord, we want to pray and bless this ministry, Lord. We want to also uh, pray for the needs, pray for the people that will be ministered to, Lord. Pray for those who uh, will hear about your uh, your plan of salvation, Lord. We just pray for all the transformed lives and uh, the goodness that will come out of this ministry, Lord. We lift all these things up in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please stand up and greet one another. Say hi, shoot a text, wave.
Well, thank you, uh, Jane, Dorothy, Tim. You know, uh, Jane and Dorothy have not aged. I swear it was a, a couple of decades ago they were involved in starting another ministry for women. And, uh, you know, it's, it's just amazing, as Tim was saying, and the elders are so excited about this. And uh, so th uh, thank you for your, sharing your hearts, the vision of your team. We are really excited. You know, as we were talking this week, it blew my mind that we're finishing this series, Covenant and the Coming of Christ, about Ruth. And Ruth, listen, is a marginalized woman whom God redeems and uses to establish a new legacy, to bring about the very Messiah that they're talking about, that these women will come to. And you see what's going on? Even as we're studying God's word, uh, there is a narrative that's written across all of it. We're really excited. Uh, so this morning, we are in our last message on Ruth. We're going to be looking at Ruth chapter 4. And I just kind of want to bring us a quick recap of the first three chapters this morning. So chapter 1, uh, we saw the plight of these two women. Ruth and Naomi. And it was sort of encapsulated in this statement of, of Naomi's where she said, don't call me pleasant. Naomi means pleasant. Call me Mara, which means bitter, because the Lord Almighty, she says, has afflicted me. And we're presented with this tension of the bitterness of her life and circumstances. But we ended that chapter with this sort of glimmer of hope as we, picture, as we saw the picture in the text of the beginning of the barley harvest that pointed towards something that God was doing and really this idea that, that, uh, that God was still at work, that all hope was, lo was not lost. And so that image of the barley harvest fe uh, figured to feature prominently in chapter 2, which it did. As we got into chapter 2 and Zach covered, our associate pastor, all of the it just so happened moments, right, in Ruth's story. It just so happened as God providentially was at work. And so we learned about gleanings, the Old Testament system of subsistence care. We learned about the practice of the kinsman redeemer, one who God established, almost ordained, to be a family sort of fail-safe against some family member becoming destitute, and so on and so forth. And then we saw that all the just so happened moments in Ruth's story also still happen today. That God, as the scripture says, does not change as the shifting shadows. And so then we arrived last week at chapter 3. And Alan Patton helped us and guided us through this most unique courtship ritual with Ruth and Boaz. And we saw more vividly Boaz was indeed this Christ figure, this deliverer who seemingly came out of nowhere, but whom God had providentially and perfectly placed in his own will and way. This was a man who embodied unique character of a gentle but firm leader and ultimately gave us an Old Testament picture of Jesus Christ. So this morning, we come to the conclusion of this most beautiful story in ancient literature. The symmetry to chapter 1 that we'll look at this morning might not be immediately apparent, but it is there. And as we listen this morning, I want to encourage us to listen for the coming of Christ in what we read and what we talk about today. Because the hope for the world of Ruth and Naomi and Boaz is also the hope for our world. Amen? Amen. So this morning, as we've been doing, uh, we're going to hear the chapter read. And I want to welcome this morning my friend Michelle Levis, who's going to read for us Ruth chapter 4. Michelle? Boaz went to the gate of the town and sat down there. Soon the family redeemer Boaz had spoken about came by. Boaz said, come over here and sit down. So he went over and sat down. Then Boaz took ten men of the town's elders and said, sit here, and they sat down. 
He said to the redeemer, Naomi, who has returned from the territory of Moab, is selling the portion of the field that belonged to our brother Elimelech. I thought I should inform you, buy it back in the presence of these seated here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you want to redeem it, do it. But if you do not want to redeem it, tell me so that I will know, because there isn't anyone other than you to redeem it, and I am next after you. I want to redeem it, he answered. Then Boaz said, on the day you buy the field from Naomi, you will acquire Ruth, the Moabitess, the wife of the, the, wife of the deceased man, to perpetuate the man's name on his property. The redeemer replied, I can't redeem it myself, or I will ruin my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption because I can't redeem it. At an earlier period in Israel, a man removed his sandal and gave it to the other party in order to make any matter legally binding concerning the right of redemption or the exchange of property. This was a method of legally binding a transaction in Israel. So the redeemer removed his sandal and said to Boaz, buy back the property yourself. Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses today that I am buying from Naomi everything that belonged to Elimelech, Kilian, and Malon. I have also acquired Ruth the Moabitess, Malon's widow, as my wife, to perpetuate the deceased man's name on his property, so that his name will not disappear among his relatives or from the gate of his hometown. You are witnesses today. All the people who were at the city gate, including the elders, said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is entering your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built the house of Israel. May you be powerful in Ephrathah and your name be well known in Bethlehem. May your house become like the house of Perez, the son of Tamar, born to Judah, because of the offspring the Lord will give you by this young woman. Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. He slept with her and the Lord granted conception to her and she gave birth to a son. The woman said to Naomi, blessed be the Lord who has left you not without a family redeemer today. May his name become well known in Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. Indeed, your daughter-in-law who loves you and is better to you than seven sons has given birth to him. Naomi took the child, placed him on her lap and became his nanny. The neighbor women said, a son has been born to Naomi, and they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the family records of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron, Hezron fathered Ram, Ram fathered Aminadab, Aminadab fathered Nashon, Nashon fathered Salmon, Salmon fathered Boaz, Boaz fathered Obed, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. been so good to have uh, a different voice as we consider this uh, this book of Ruth this amazing uh, short story and uh, you know this morning we're going to be looking at this idea that God's concern is not so much for my name and my legacy but for his own 
God's concern is for his own name and his own legacy, but he delights to extend lavish grace to you and me, particularly in, a, in really difficult circumstances, that we might respond, and as we sang this morning, magnify his name, believe in his name, and praise his name. So we're really talking about a great name this morning. And we're going to look at four parallel things that if you followed from a couple weeks ago in our first week, sort of mirror what we looked at in chapter one. We're going to look at the fate of Elimelech's house. We're going to look, at, going to look at the cost of Boaz's commitment. Uh, we're going to look at the blessing of Naomi's deliverance and ultimately the fulfillment of Yahweh's redemption. So we begin this morning with the fate of Elimelech's house or his family line. Now, 80% or so of this chapter takes place at the city gate. And I think it's important we understand that the city gate is not like the entrance to a horse corral, right, or a gated community. The city gate is this large area. You'll see a couple pictures here. Uh, these are gates uh, of um, archaeological digs at Tel Hetzor and Tel Lachish. These are ancient cities probably built by Solomon. And the gate was this huge passageway through which all the people would go as they entered and left the city. And on either side of the gate were these chambers, sometimes four, six, or eight chambered gates. And these served, this area served sort of like the town hall or the town grange. It's where people would come and transact official business. And so it's not beyond the reach that Boaz, as he goes there, just kind of runs into this other kinsman redeemer. And so this conversation ensues, and Boaz actually invites, for legal purposes, 10 elders of the city to come and to, to uh, bear witness to this transaction. Now, I want to make a note to the elders who are in the room or maybe watching online this morning here at Groton Bible Chapel. The word elder here in the Old Testament comes from the Hebrew word to have a beard, to have a beard. And so it may be that Groton Bible Chapel, our most official elder is Brian Buckley. Uh, where is he? <laughs> Because he's got the big, if you notice, I'm actually growing mine out. Now, I'm actually growing it out because it's winter. It has nothing to do with that. But isn't it interesting, like, as we get into the, uh, the etymology of some of these words. But nonetheless, they begin to have this conversation. And the conversation centers around these Old Testament redemption laws. God, in his workings with his people, his dealings with his people, set forth all these laws that ultimately were about magnifying his name, but also helped them take care of themselves. Some of them were civil. These were redemption laws. And there are three of them. Now, there are only two that are explicitly referenced in the book of Ruth. But we're going to infer the third one. And I think you'll see why, particularly as we get to uh, the parallel to Jesus Christ this morning. Uh, for the sake of time, we won't look at the passages at length. But we'll put the references on the, on the screen. And you'll be able to see it at home if you want to do some further study. So the first one is the redemption of property. We've talked a little bit about this, but the redemption of property in Leviticus 25 was that if you lost some property or had to sell property to make ends meet, that you could actually, at a, at a time where you were more well off, buy it back or a male relative could purchase it back for you. That's what it means to redeem. To redeem means to just to buy back, to purchase back into your own possession. So Leviticus 25, the middle of the chapter, deals with the redemption of property. The second uh, redemption law is the redemption of person. That is that if I sold myself into indentured servitude or into, into essentially slavery to make ends meet or as a, as a career, as a job, that when I was again more well off, I could buy myself out of servitude or a male relative could come and could purchase me out of servitude as well, could redeem my personhood as it were. 
The third one is really a completely separate law. It's not connected directly to these first two, the redemption of property and person, but it's actually called the Levirate marriage law. It's the brother-in-law rule. And the brother-in-law rule, which appears in Deuteronomy 25, said that if your brother was unable to provide a male heir and was ultimately killed and his wife was left a widow, then the, the living brother would have to provide a male heir for him by marrying the widow. And, and if you read the law in Deuteronomy 25, there's some extensive stuff related to if he refused to provide. Namely, ladies, you could take his sandal and spit in his face. It's the Old Testament. I don't know what to tell you. But this is the, these are the things that we are dealing with in Deuteronomy, or in Ruth chapter 4, from Leviticus and Deuteronomy. The, the redemption of, of property, the redemption of personhood, and the redemption of progeny. Now, why do we speak to the middle one there, the redemption of person, when it's not specifically referenced in Ruth? The reason is, quite frankly, because Ruth, as she comes into Bethlehem, remember, she is a foreigner who has left everything, who is living with her older widowed mother-in-law. And it is, it is fairly reasonable to assume that had God not just so happened to place her in the field of Boaz, that she ultimately would have ended up in some sort of servitude. And so really all three of these things are, are at play. And so Boaz presents this uh, to the near kinsman. First he presents, he's very shrewd, and he first presents the, the land issue. And then he presents the issue of redeeming Ruth and providing for the line of Malon and Elimelech. Now one possible question that kind of works itself out here is he references that Naomi owns the field. If Naomi owns the property, why is she destitute? Really scholars are not clear on this, uh, but it may be something like she had to mortgage the husband's property to make ends meet, uh, but she still had, had, had uh, some equity in it. Or maybe that she or Elimelech, before they left Israel previously, that they had put uh, someone on the property or, or had, had squatters on it. There's all kinds of reasons why. But we know from our previous study that she couldn't formally own the property to begin with, and so it needs to be redeemed for her one way or another. Now Ruth, her relationship to the property has everything to do with the fact that she was legally married to Malon, who has died, and she is the only one in this little uh, circle of people who is able to provide a male heir. Right? Naomi is beyond her childbearing years. Ruth is the one who is legally able to provide an heir. So there's actually a, a legal connection from Ruth to Elimelech's field uh, that Naomi uh, needs, to, needs to have redeemed. And so this kinsman redeemer ultimately refuses. Now he says in the text that so we have an idea that he's concerned about his own inheritance. And, uh, you know, reading some, uh, a fascinating, uh, relaxing read for the fireside here called Systems of Land Tenure in Ancient Israel. Doesn't that sound interesting? Systems of Land Tenure in Ancient Israel, if you're looking for light reading, uh, by Herbert Best says this. He says, he, the close relative, must have reasoned that in order to buy Naomi's land, he would have to invest a part of the value of his own estate or inheritance. Then, should he father a child of Ruth's, that son, in Malon's name, not his own, would become the heir of the land which he bought with money from his own estate. And so his concern here is that there's sort of a double loss at, at effect, right? He would, he would take some of his children's inheritance and purchase land that would really never be a part of his estate, but that land would also be given away to someone else. And so he is ultimately unwilling to pay that cost. He is unwilling to pay that, that cost. As we'll see, Boaz is a little bit 
different. But you know, it begs the, the application question for us this morning. It's the thing I've been thinking about this week. Whose name am I living for? Whose name am I living for? You know, there's this fascinating little detail in this part of the story. That this man, his concern was his name, his legacy, his estate, his inheritance, essentially his name. And yet the author goes to great lengths to make it obvious that we don't know his name. That he is anonymous. In fact, when Boaz invites him over at the city gate to come sit with him, he uses a Hebrew idiom which essentially translates, Hey, Mr. So-and-so, come on over here. Further, uh, J. Vernon McGee on his uh, commentary on this passage, when talking about the sandal exchange that we'll talk about in a minute, he refers to the unnamed kinsman redeemer as old Mr. Barefoot, which I thought was uh, relatively funny. What's the point this morning? In his deep desire and his deepest concern to preserve his name, he actually preserves his anonymity. By not being willing to bear the cost for someone else and being concerned about his own legacy, he actually preserves his anonymity and he is not remembered at all in the story. And so what am I, who am I living for? Am I living for my name, my reputation, my estate, my inheritance, or am I living for the name and legacy of Jesus? You see, God's concern, and this is a really clear ringing truth throughout all of Scripture, God's concern is not your name and your legacy or mine. It is His. And even His grace to us is a manifestation in a way in which he delights to pour out grace on us. He delights to uh, lavish good graces on us, but so that his name might be magnified, believed in, and ultimately trusted in and praised. I'm reminded of the uh, great German missionary, probably ultimately the father of Western European missions movement, Uh, Count Zinzendorf, who is credited to have said this, preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. Now, that quote actually can't be found attributed to him in that manner, but this is what he actually said. And he lived about 1700 to about 1760. He said, remember, you must never use your position to lord it over the heathen. Instead, you must humble yourself and earn their respect through your own quiet faith and the power of the Holy Spirit. The missionary must seek nothing for himself, no seat of honor, no hope or fame. You must be content to suffer, to die, and be forgotten. Slightly different than the American Christian subculture today, where we are ultimately concerned about our rights and our needs and our name and our reputation. Now, if you think that Zinzendorf was an extremist, I want you to hear the words and hear me to hear the words this morning of Jesus in Luke chapter 9. Jesus said to them, If anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life because of me, some of your versions will say, for my sake, will save it. For what does it benefit someone if he gains the whole world and yet loses or forfeits himself, or some versions will say, your own soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him, when he comes in his glory and that of the Father and the holy angels. These are not easy words. And I think sometimes we forget them. But there is, there is ultimately, while our salvation is a free gift of God in walking and following God, it at the same time costs us everything. And so Zinzendorf, as a missionary, that should be the mission of every Christian. And it certainly cuts me to the heart 
even this week. You see, there is a cost, and it's a cost that Boaz is willing to pay. What is the cost of Boaz's commitment? You see, Boaz fulfills all of the roles of the Goel, the kinsman redeemer. He says, I am buying everything, the whole estate of Malon and Kilion, and have I, I have acquired Ruth the Moabitess as my wife. Again, redeeming property and the Levirate marriage law were actually two separate things. And if we infer the idea of the redeeming the personhood of Ruth and Naomi's situation, Boaz wants to do all of it. He wants to accomplish it as a picture of lavish generosity. Okay, so then they do this. Then there's this sandal exchange. Right? And, and there's some reference in there that this was a custom that was earlier, that took place earlier in Israel. It's an editorial comment. Now, before we judge too harshly of the idea of sealing a contract by taking off your shoes, let's remember what God had Abraham do when he gave him the land. What did he say? Walk the length and breadth of it. But even today, for those of us in this room, those of us tuning in online, don't you imagine that there's going to come a day where we'll say, there was a time in the world at this time when people greeted each other by bumping elbows or by doing distance nods. Let's not be too harsh on the sandal exchangers, as it were. And so then there's this blessing that is pronounced. It's a historical blessing. The first part of the blessing says, May your house be like that of Rachel and Leah and their two maidservants, ultimately, who provided or who built the house of Israel, who provided 12 sons to Jacob that became the 12 sons of Israel. And then the second blessing is, May your house be that, like that of Perez. And the idea here is fruitfulness. The word Ephrathah, the larger area around Bethlehem, means fruitful. And so the elders and the women and the townspeople who are gathered there, they, they are wishing fruitfulness upon Boaz and Ruth in this marriage. They're delighted at how this has worked out. They are witnesses to God's greater work. Without spending too much time on it, there's an interesting set of parallels between Boaz and Ruth's story and the early sto earlier story of Judah and Tamar. By the way, it's probably more accurately pronounced Tamar, but this, Tamar is how I learned it in Sunday school, so you're going to have to deal. But listen to these parallels. And you can read about uh, the birth of Perez and this story of, of Judah and Tamar in Genesis chapter 38. Uh, Ruth and Tamar are both foreign women who married into Israel. Both of their husbands died, leaving them widows. Both of them had participated in Le the Levirate marriage law. Tamar seduced Judah under the cover of, of a disguise, whereas we learned last week, Ruth encouraged Boaz under the cover of darkness. And ultimately, when Judah and Tamar appear before a public tribunal in Genesis 38-39, they are condemned and they're ashamed of what has happened in their arrangement. Whereas Ruth and Boaz here, there is delight and there is praise to God. In some ways, Ruth and Boaz's uh, coming together in the birth of Obed legitimizes, or maybe better said, redeems what had happened generationally with Judah and, and Tamar in the birth of Perez. But both stories... Both stories highlight the grace of God. The grace of God in redeeming foreign women, using them to bring about the promised deliverer. And it is once again a place where the Holy Scripture in a very patriarchal society takes these two marginalized women, and in the case here of Ruth and Naomi, and elevates them to the highest place and esteems them in being the very lineage of Jesus the Christ. 
And so the blessing is pronounced. But I want us to notice this morning, the blessing is only partially to Ruth and Boaz. Eventually, the language of blessing turns to Naomi. Because while Ruth is going to be the, the vehicle or the vessel of God's blessing, it's really Naomi who is the recipient of God's blessing. And let's remember, Naomi's behavior and attitude and response to God has not been stellar throughout. And so it further highlights his grace. The text says that the Lord granted Ruth conception. This is God's personal blessing. And the women say that he, God, the Lord, has not left you without a redeemer. It is God himself who blesses ultimately Naomi. And so we see that the Goel, the redeemer, actually moves from Boaz to Obed. The birth of Obed, this child who will become a man, who will become the grandfather of King David and an ancestor of Jesus, will be the redeemer of his family. But I want to hang with Boaz for a minute. I want to hang with Boaz. Listen to this uh, uh, comment from one, one scholar. He said this. He said, if a mere human being could love an outcast, redeem her, and bring her into fellowship with himself, God could love all the outcasts of the world, redeem them, and bring them into fellowship with himself. And in fact, that's what he has done. And so our second question this morning is, have I believed in his name? Have I believed in his name? We first asked, whose name am I living for? This, the second question is, have I believed in his name? You see, Boaz, who prefigures Jesus, willingly bears the cost in himself to redeem the property of Elimelech, to redeem the person of Ruth from certain servitude, and to, in an act of lavish generosity, redeems the progeny of the family line of Elimelech and Malon, ultimately Naomi, and he fulfills the provision of an heir. Well, in the gospel, God has provided a perfect redeemer. Amen? Amen? He is one who is also willing to bear the full cost of your redemption of mine. He's one whose name, by the way, is above every name. And just as Boaz fulfills the redemption of property, person, and progeny, so our great Redeemer has redeemed us. Just as Ruth walked away, turned away from everything that she had in Moab, including the gods of her ancestors, so when we turn to him, he, Jesus, says this. As we walk away, as we, the Bible, biblical word is repentance, he says this, Matthew 19, everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or fields because of my name will receive a hundred times more and will inherit eternal life. You talk about the redemption of property. God's redemption through Christ is so complete. But you know, it doesn't end there. Just as Ruth walked away from all she knew, just as Ruth and Naomi were redeemed from the prospects of becoming servants or slaves, so he has also redeemed us and brought us out in Romans where Paul says we have been set free from slavery to sin to the degree to which we are actually now obligated as slaves to righteousness. We are slaves to righteousness for Christ's sake. He redeems us. He sets us free. As some say, he hasn't just saved us from something. He has saved us to something. And as if that weren't enough, in his lavish grace, as we've been talking about throughout the fall, he preserves our spiritual lineage. He redeems our spiritual line. He adopts us as his very own. He makes us a part of a new family. 
Jesus redeems us completely. This is the gospel. We are destitute. We are foreign. We are the ones who are enslaved. We bring nothing to the table. But Jesus delights to extend lavish grace to you and me, costly grace, and to redeem us through his shed blood on the cross. That we might respond and magnify his name, believe in his name, and praise his name. Trusting only in him. This morning, I wonder, have you believed in his name? Have you believed in the gospel and what Jesus has done for you at Calvary's cross? If you have not resolved that in your life and heart, that is the most important question you need to ask this morning. That you would receive what Jesus has done for you on your behalf. Full redemption, full pardon. Well, that brings us to our final point, and that is the fulfillment of Yahweh's redemption. Now, it's curious because it actually occurs in a genealogy of all places. You heard Michelle read the ten names of the ancestors of Perez leading all the way to King David. And if we continued and and attached Ruth chapter 4 to Matthew chapter 1, we would read at the conclusion, and Mary gave birth to Jesus, who is called the Christ. You see, the genealogy, if you've read the scriptures and you get to these genealogies in the Old Testament, you say, why in the world is this in here? So-and-so beget so-and-so who beget so-and-so who beget so-and-so. Well, there's a myriad of answers to that. Number one, the genealogies are one of the ways that we can validate the historicity of scripture. That's an, an apologetic point. But here for us this morning is God gives us this genealogy as a reason to trust him. It is a validation of the promises to Ruth. In in other words, in case you want to know how it worked out, here's how it worked out. It reminds me of a story from, I think, about two and a half years ago. We were uh, in the throes of kind of moving toward building the building that some of you are sitting in this morning. And uh, we were in the financing side of things. And this one particular day, uh, myself... Dave Krug, our, our treasurer, and Jeff Seidel, our building committee chair, were basically summoned to a meeting with the bank. And, and the question that we were uh, uh, sort of summoned to address or discuss with them was the nature of risk of loaning a large amount of money to a church, right? A church's business model is very different than an or- a corporation. And ultimately, what we found out through the conversation was the, the folks that we were dealing with didn't have the authority to make some different arrangements because we were a church. They needed somebody else in the company. But in the ensuing conversation, before we got to that point, uh, we shared two documents with them. The first document showed a two-decade, 20-year, quarter-over-quarter increase in generosity here at the chapel. Just further demonstrating the faithfulness of God and the generosity of God's people here at GBC. For every quarter for 20 years, with the exception of the third quarter of 2015, not sure why, but for every other quarter of that 20 years, there was increased growth in giving quarter over quarter. So we showed them that document. The second document was an itemized list of $1.7 million in capital projects, things like the renovation of the infrastructure in the parking lot, the renovation of the previous sanctuary, the the repointing of the concrete and the new uh, windows in the gym, and on and on and on. $1.7 million in capital projects for which we didn't borrow one nickel during that same time period. Praise God for the generosity of his people. Why did we share those documents with them? It was a reason to trust. 
It was a reason to trust. That's what this genealogy is. This is God's demonstrative proof within the context of the story of Ruth that you can trust me. And when we marry it up with the genealogy in Matthew chapter 1, we can ultimately trust him. Because the cross, or the birth of Christ, leads to the cross of Christ, and the ultimate validation is the resurrection of Christ. By the way, if you're not sure where you stand with Jesus, start with the resurrection. Because if that didn't happen, the rest of this is a moot point. But if it did, and I think you know where I stand this morning, then you better pay attention to the rest of what God has to say to you. Because you see, this is not just a story for Ruth and Naomi and Boaz. It's for you and me. It's for you and me. So I want to conclude this morning by declaring the greatness of God in the name of Jesus by singing together. I want to ask this morning, will I trust and even sing his name? And let me say that backwards. As we sing these words this morning, they'll be familiar. I want to encourage you not to sing them if you don't mean them. Now, worship has this profound effect. On on the one hand, we should come with our hearts ready to sing these words. But on the other hand, sometimes singing the words help get our hearts to that place. So I want you to just listen. If you're not there, just be honest with the Lord and don't sing for the first verse through the first chorus. And then sing regardless and ask God to change your heart. May it be that we are about his great name because he delights to deliver us from all kinds of circumstances that we might magnify his name, his name, and praise his name. And so the women who are ministering to Naomi, after in chapter one she has said, don't call me pleasant, call me bitter. They say this, blessed be the Lord who has not left you without a redeemer today. Will you stand and sing with us this morning as we close?
Praise God. Thank you all for being with us today. Um, just a reminder, register for Thanksgiving Eve if you are coming. And if you are new, we would love the chance to connect with you. Click I'm new on the website. Stop by our Welcome Center on the way out. December 5th is our next coffee and questions. Myself, Gary, and Jason gather with us. Learn about the church. Learn how to plug in. You can sign up online or just write coffee and questions on a connect card. But church, it's been wonderful. Have a great day. Have a great week. You are not dismissed. You are sent. We'll see you next time.